0: Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit VineyardCleveland.org. Good morning, Vineyard Cleveland. So glad to see you guys and to be here with you in person. Um, We're in a series called Hearts Reunited where we are looking at Acts chapter 2 to see what was the heart of the early church. But before I get too far into the sermon, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are here, that you are near us, God, that you love us, that you're with us always. Lord, pray that you would speak to us today, God, that you speak to our hearts and let us receive what you have for us today. Help me to get out of the way, Lord, and let your anointing be on these words so that um, we can hear from your heart and be transformed like you want us to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, the followers of Jesus had shared a number of paradigm-shifting experiences. Following Jesus had been their whole way of life, but then they experienced a crisis that turned everything upside down. Jesus was crucified And they feared for their own lives and went into isolation, unsure of what to do or what would come next. All of their natural rhythms were disrupted. And then Jesus came back and told them it was time for them to go out and re-engage the world, to reconnect with their mission, their purpose, to reconnect with the people that God was calling them to. And there are some parallels with the situation that many are experiencing these days, And we believe that God speaks through his word with answers for all of our heart's most deepest, most desperate needs. And we see that Jesus did not leave his followers to their own devices, their own cleverness or power, which means that he won't leave us either. He told them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and um, that the Holy Spirit changed them or not change them, sorry, charge them with the power to continue following Jesus in this next chapter of their lives. And in Acts two forty-two through 47, we see how that power worked out in their lives. What the spirit empowers his people to live like. Let's read. So Acts two forty-two forty-seven, 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, the early church is not actually set up as a model of something that we must copy, right? Because it was still made up of ordinary people like you and me who sin and get things wrong. There were things that they were still learning. There were mistakes made. There were false teachers and divisions and other problems just like there are now. But... Just like now, the grace of God and the spirit of God were moving in powerful ways. Each aspect of this passage that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks is a pillar of the way that God designed us to live life, a foundation of spiritual health, a vital aspect to thriving living. We're going to talk about fellowship, prayer, generosity, praising God, and sharing the good news. Last week, Ben Barnhart talked about the Apostles' teaching and how it relates to our reading and studying and knowing and being devoted to the Bible. And this week, we're going to talk about how being devoted to the Apostles' teaching also means being specifically devoted to the gospel. But before we talk about being devoted to the gospel, we have to make sure we know what the gospel is, right? Because the gospel can easily be one of those church words that we say all the time and that we know is the right answer to all the questions, but we don't really know exactly what it is or how to explain it if someone asks. For most of my life, I had the misconception that the gospel was mainly for people who didn't know Jesus yet. I thought the gospel was the doorway to Christianity. It's what you needed to get into the house, but then after you get into the house, you move on to other things. You know, you get into the deeper truth, the more exciting stuff right? And you only talk about the door when it's time to invite someone else in. But the more I grow and learn, the more I've walked life, and the more I've studied and heard teachings from people who are more mature than me and who know Jesus better than I do, I, the more I come to understand that the gospel is not only the door to the house, it's the whole house. Right? To change metaphors, I thought the gospel was the starting line of the race. But come to find out that it's actually the whole raceway. Everything we are, everything we think, everything we say and do should be rooted in the foundation of the gospel, built out of the strength of the gospel and pointing towards the hope of the gospel. It's the answer to all of our heart's needs before we follow Jesus. It's the answer to all our heart's needs as we follow Jesus. And it's what we need to be reminded of every day. The gospel, which literally means the good news, is that the infinite God who created all things and holds all things together created a perfect world where people could live in love and perfect harmony with God and with everyone and everything else. But we humans rejected him. We rebelled against him, and we continue to do that today. We choose to be our own gods. And when that inevitably fails, we try to find something Anything else to fill that deep void left in our hearts. A void that was meant to be filled with the infinite love of God. We try to be good people, right? Or we try to be religious people. Or we chase after success, after money, after things. We look to other people to fill that hole. We look to romance or sex or friendships or family. We want to make an impact, so sometimes we'll use that to try to fill that hole. Or we want to leave a legacy. Or... We forget about it, and we try to forget about all of that aching and all that emptiness, and we want to drown that emptiness with fun and good times, alcohol, parties, drugs, adrenaline rushes, Netflix binges. But deep down, we know that none of these things work, that we can't find that true life. We can't fill that deep hole. Jeremiah 17:5 and 6 says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for a strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. The image speaks to the burning, unquenchable thirst, the endless dissatisfaction from putting our trust in anything but God. In Jeremiah 2.13, God puts it this way. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, broken wells that do not hold water. Not only is our rejection of God a bad idea that leads to a fruitless wasteland of emptiness, it's sin, rebellion, a cosmic crime that deserves punishment. If you continuously spurn and reject someone who is continuously providing for you, caring for you, reaching out to you, loving you, and being good to you as God has been, like, what do you deserve? What's the fair, right thing to happen? You, des- you deserve to be cut off, right? Isaiah 59.2 says, your iniquities, which is a big word for sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sin has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Um, and Romans 6.23 also says that the wages of sin is death. James 1.15 says that when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. It's the inevitable consequence. Sin is poison. It's a rot that eats out our very souls. Sin corrupts everything it touches and leaves it twisted, hollow, broken, and death in anyone and everyone who takes it in. But the good news, the gospel, is that God loved us so much that he could not leave us to the hopeless, abandoned, abandoned, broken state. He could not abandon us to death. God sent his son, Jesus, to do what we could not do. He lived life the way that we should have lived, right? A perfect life, fully connected to God, unstained and uncorrupted by sin. But then he died the death that we were supposed to die, taking all of the poisonous rot of our sin and the death that comes with it onto himself when he died on the cross. And when he raised to life, He broke the power of sin and darkness, and now, through trusting in him, we connect our lives to his life, and we are brought into the perfect, infinite love relationship with God that we were created for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our sin, took it on himself so that we could be given his righteousness, that perfection. All that stuff that we were striving for, all that problems inside of us that we're trying to fix, Jesus has fixed it and has given us his righteousness. Jesus says in John five twenty four, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. That's the good news, right? And it's available to everyone. In Acts 2.32, when Peter is sharing the good news, he's sharing the gospel with everyone after uh, Pentecost. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So that's the gospel. And it's not a stretch to say that it was probably the main aspect of the apostles' teaching that was mentioned in Acts 2.42. How can we know? Well, for one, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the apostles that they would be his witnesses, right? And what are, were they witnesses of? His life, death, and resurrection. That's clearly how the apostles interpret the word witness. If you read Acts chapters 1 and 2, whenever they talk about being witnesses, they talk about being witnesses of his life, his death, his resurrection. And more than that, As you read through Acts, you'll discover that almost every time the apostles or any other followers of Jesus talk for more than like a couple of sentences, it's the gospel. Uh, When Peter speaks to the onlookers at at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's the gospel. When he speaks to the crowd who came to see the paralyzed man that was healed... In Acts chapter 3, it's the gospel. When Peter and John are brought before the religious rulers to be questioned about the healings in Acts chapter 4, it's the gospel. Later in Acts 5, they are thrown in jail. And when an angel miraculously releases them, what's the first thing they do? The gospel. They preach the gospel. I can keep going on, but you guys get the picture, right? These guys were seriously devoted to teaching the gospel. But why? Why were they so devoted to sharing the gospel? And why should we be so devoted to sharing the gospel? right Well by their own testimony in Acts chapter 4 verse 20 they said we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard we can't help it we got to do it Paul even though he was not one of the original apostles even though he was not even part of this whole thing at the beginning he felt the same way in 1 Corinthians 9:16 he says he was compelled to preach the gospel and in fact, he cried out, whoa, to me, if I don't preach it, I got to do it. I got to get it out. In Romans 1:16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The gospel is not just a story. It's not a philosophy. It's not just a way of life. It's the power of God. A power that is so monumental, so transformative, so necessary that to keep it inside is like trying to put a nuclear explosion into a bottle of Coke. How different would our lives be if we could grasp the enormity of the power that God has given us in Jesus? If we could really believe the gospel and remember that we believe it. The Bible paints pictures of gospel realities such as the boundless riches of Christ, love that surpasses knowledge. That's in Ephesians 3. Peace that transcends all understanding. That's Philippians 4.7. Inexpressible and glorious joy. That's 1 Peter 1.8. Hope that is an anchor to our souls. Hebrews 6.19. The church in Acts was bursting with the gospel because they knew that in it, they experienced the power of God. They experienced the presence of God himself. And this power was not just for them. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul wrote that Christ's love compelled them, right, to share the gospel. His love compelled them to do it. In Acts 2.40, Peter, after his whole Pentecost speech, He begged and pleaded with the people to turn to Jesus and be rescued. He loved them too much to be polite. He loved them too much to sound respectable and not like some religious weirdo, right? He knew that God had taken him off the pathway of death and had filled him with living water. And he knew that he could share that life, that joy, that peace, that hope, the power with anybody and everybody. So that's what they did. That's what the whole church did. Even in Acts chapter 26, when Paul was in court with his life on the line, all he saw was an opportunity to love people with the greatest love he had ever known. When the king, who was trying him, realized that Paul was using his so-called defense time to share the gospel, he scoffed and said, Do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? But Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, well, except for these chains. They were devoted to the gospel because they knew that there was no way they could truly experience God's love and keep it to themselves. If they did not share this life-changing good news, they knew that they could not really claim to love others, right? To care for them and want what's best for them because... What's best for everyone is to be rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. What's best is for people to be healed from their brokenness and set free from their chains, to be filled with the unshakable, unchangeable, never-ending love of God, the love that we all ache for because we were made for it. What's best for everyone is to experience the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, left-wing and right-wing, the put-together and the hot messes, every race, every country, everybody, everywhere, right? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, and so we love the world too. And 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. The disciples were also devoted to the gospel because they recognized it as the command of God. So they, all, they had the, the burning sensation in their hearts because the power of God was exploding in there. They had their love for the people. And then if none of those worked, they're like, well, God just told us to do it, so we got to do it. Jesus had commissioned them, and by extension us, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, 8, he said, You will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 4.19, when Peter and John were ordered by the ruling religious council to stop preaching the gospel, they responded, well, which is right, to listen to you or God? And then when the same thing happened in Acts 5.29, they said, we must obey God rather than humans. They knew that being devoted to the gospel was more than an issue of preference or personality. It's not optional. It's not an optional facet of Christianity, right? They remembered that Jesus had told them in John 14:21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15, Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore, all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Obeying the commands of Jesus is the way that we reciprocate the love that God has given us. It doesn't make God love us, more or less, right, because nothing can change that. Our love is secure in Jesus. It's perfect. There's no changing it. However, when we obey God's commands, it shows us and it shows the world that we have received God's love. We have been changed by it. So we too should be devoted to the gospel. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be devoted to the gospel? How can we do that? We're going to talk about two aspects, right? First, we work the gospel in and then we let the gospel out. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. So how did you receive Jesus, Jesus as Lord? It was a free gift, right? Nothing that you worked for. It was a free gift given out of his great love because he loved you when you were at your most unlovely. Keep your roots deep in that truth. Build your lives on the strength of that truth. We work the gospel deep down into our hearts so that it can overflow out of our lives. To work the gospel in is to preach the gospel to yourself daily, to bring its weight down, to bear on everything you encounter to use the gospel as the lens through which you view all of the world. When you have low self-esteem and feel insignificant in the world, when you feel like you're not important, like you don't matter, you tell yourself that the God of the universe, the most important being in all of everything, sees you, knows you, loves you. You remind yourself that he loved you so much that he died just to be with you. You tell yourself, 1 Peter 2.8, that you are part of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You tell yourself, 1 Corinthians 15.10, that by the grace of God, you are what you are, and that his grace is not without effect. When you feel crushed by failure, when you just messed up a bunch of times and everything just keeps piling on, you remember that nothing can take away from the honor that God has given you in Christ. Nothing diminishes the love that he has for you. You remember that your failures do not rob you of the true heavenly riches because first Peter one, four says that those are kept safe in heaven for you in Christ. Ephesians one, three says that he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Your failure has not cost you anything that you truly need. You you preach the gospel to yourself to strengthen yourself from your fears, because you remember Romans 8:31 and32 that because of Jesus, God is for you. He is on your side. So who can be against you? God gave up His own Son for you. How will He not also, along with him, graciously give you everything you need? When you are in the midst of hard trials, you know from Romans eight thirty-five to 39 that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, that you will conquer and more than conquer through him who loves you. When you have sinned again and again, when you have a mortal failure, you preach to yourself, 1 John 1 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You preach Romans 8:1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember that God is not mad at you. His heart is tender and compassionate, gentle and lowly, humble, eager to run to his prodigal sons and daughters. When you feel alone, misunderstood, or rejected, when you feel mad because people just don't get it, or they're talking poorly about you, or they're, you know, slandering you behind your back, you remind yourself of the truth that God sees you, and he knows you to your deepest core. He knows your every thought, and he loves you. He loves you with a love that makes the most passionate human love, the deepest human friendship, feel like nothing but a puff of smoke. He loves you with the love that drove him to cross heaven and earth for you, to die for you, to raise for you, and to make his home with you forever. When life is going great and you have much to be proud of, you check your pride because you remember in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why boast as though you did not? When someone asks you to do something that's hard or uncomfortable, something that feels beneath you, when you're tired of giving and giving and pouring out and pouring out, or if there's something you just don't want to do. You remember from Philippians 2 how Jesus emptied and lowered himself, becoming a servant, pouring himself out even to death, all so that undeserving people who gave him nothing could be lifted up. And then when people see the light of Jesus coming from your life, and they're drawn to it, when they praise you because you're so good, oh, you're so nice, you're so sweet, you're so loving, you're so hardworking or funny or whatever, you respond like Peter and John in Acts 3.12 and say, why do you look at us as if this is by our own power or godliness? It's not. Because we recognize that we are not the goodness, right? We're not the star, the hero of the story. Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4.5 says, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So when we do great, our heads don't get puffed up. We point to Christ because he's the source of all that. When we mess up, we aren't afraid or ashamed to admit it. We don't wallow in our shame and hit ourselves in the back and say, oh no, I'm so awful, because we recognize we can point to how we need Christ. We know that we're forgiven in him, and this is just another sign to remind us that. Right, We can apologize quickly and turn around quickly because our position is always secure through Jesus. We know we are always loved and accepted. We don't have to defend ourselves because we know that we have been seen and known by the only one that matters and seen as perfectly righteous because we are in him. He knows all things and he's already seen us at our worst. There's no sin that we can do that will shock or disgust him away from loving us. Romans 5.8 affirms that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 again reminds us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. And the more that we let this gospel in the more we let the gospel out. We become people who extend this grace that we've received to others who need it. We forgive their failures and even their evil intentions because Colossians 3.13 tells us to bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances we have against one another, to forgive as the Lord forgave us. We love and honor people no matter what they look like, no matter what they think like, no matter what they smell like, no matter what they live like. Because we know that Jesus loves them immensely. And he loved and honored us when we had nothing to make us desirable either. We love and honor them because we remember that in 1 Corinthians 6, after a long list of the kind of sinners who would not enter the kingdom of heaven, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And so were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. We know that no one is outside of the reach of God's grace and love because we were not outside of the reach of God's grace and love. And we're no better than anybody. We strengthen each other with the gospel because we know that we are prone to forget it, right? Like that's Satan's main tactic. He wants to get us to forget or to suppress it because we want to be our own gods, we still want to do things our own way. We want to feel like we've earned things, but we don't. So we remind each other of the gospel. Hebrews 3:13 says, "Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness." Hebrews 10:25 says, "Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day of Jesus coming back approaching." We let the gospel out when we are generous to others with our time, talents, and possessions because God has been generous to us. We consider their needs above our own because Philippians 2 reminds us that that's what Jesus did, right? Because we know that Philippians 4.19 promises that God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We seek to serve rather than to be served Because that's how Jesus described himself in Mark 10, 43 and 45. We let the gospel out when we love others enough to invite them into this love, this family that we've been graciously adopted into. When we love them more than we are afraid of what they might think of us, of how they might respond to us. When you've experienced something wonderful, don't you want to talk about it? to share with others. Whether it's a great restaurant or a new show or a good book or an exciting relationship, we are quick to share praises of our excellent or exciting experiences. And what is more excellent or exciting than infinite love, than rescue from impending death, than healing from aching emptiness? Like Peter in Acts 2.40 we should love people so much that we plead with them, beg them. 2 Corinthians 5:20 says, "We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God." Please. We implore, we plead, we beg. We want people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because he is so, so so good. God himself pleads. He begs us. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 7, he says, "'Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is bread and your labor on what does not satisfy?' Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Jesus pleads. Jesus begs us. In John 7.37, on the last and greatest day of a festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And again, in Matthew 11.28, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, if you are someone who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus, I beg you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Turn away from your sin and trying to be your own savior and be rescued by the one who will love you perfectly forever. If you are someone who is following Jesus, I beg you, don't forget the gospel. Remember that you were worse than you ever dared to think, but you are more loved than you would ever dare to dream. Continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for just the impossible truth that you love us this much, that you would open up the way to you and make it so free, so easy, so easy, in fact, that we forget it all the time, God. It's so easy to walk out these doors and to slip back into the rhythm of life, to let worries and cares pile up on us, um, to get distracted by you know, our phones or by the TV or by whatever else is going on, by our problems, by our struggles. But help us remember, Lord, that you are here, that you are good, that you are with us, and that you are for us. Help us, Jesus, to turn to you and to accept your sacrifice, to accept that we can't do it on our own, and we don't have to do it on our own, because you did it for us. Let us live and revel in that truth, Lord, and let us share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.